Chapter Fourteen of the Sturdy Oak. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sturdy Oak, Chapter Fourteen, by Leroy Scott. In the meantime, concern and suspense and eruptive wrath had their chief abode in the inner room of Remington and Evans. George had received a request, through Penny Evans, from the chief of police to remain in his office, where he could be reached instantly if information concerning Genevieve were received, and where his help could instantly be secured were it required. And Penny had enlarged that request to the magnitude of a command, and had stood by to see that it was obeyed, and himself to give assistance. George had recognized the sense of the order, but he rebelled at the enforced inactivity. Where was Genevieve? Why wasn't he out doing something for her? He strode about the office, fuming, sick with the suspense and inaction of his role. But Genevieve was not his unbroken concern. He was still afire with the high resentment which a few hours earlier had made him go striding into the office of the Sentinel. Fragments of his statement to the editor leaped into his mind and as he strode up and down he repeated phrases silently but with fierce emphasis of the soul now and again he paused at his window and looked down into main street below him was a crowd that was growing in size and disorder the last afternoon of any campaign in whitewater was exciting enough much more so were the final hours of this campaign that marked the first entrance of women into politics in Whitewater on a scale and with an organized energy that might affect the outcome of the morrow's voting. Across the way, Mrs. Harrington, the fighting blood of five generations of patriots roused in her, had reinstated the voiceless speech within the plate-glass window broken by the stones of that morning, and was herself operating it and, armed with banners, groups of women from the Women's Club, the Municipal League, and the Suffrage Society were marching up and down the street sidewalks. It was their final demonstration, their last chance to assert the demands of good citizenship, and it had attracted hundreds of curious men, vote-owners, belonging to what, in such periods of political struggle, were referred to on platforms as our better element. Also drifting into Main Street were groups of voters of less prepossessing aspect, Noonan's men, George recognized them to be. These jeered and jostled the marching women, and hooted the remarks of the voiceless speech. But the women, disregarding insults and attacks, went on with their silent campaigning. The feeling was high, and George could see, as Noonan's men kept drifting into Main Street, that feeling was growing higher. Looking down, George felt an angered exultation. Well, his statement in the Sentinel, due upon the street almost any moment, would answer all these and give them something to think about, a statement which would make an even greater stir than the declaration which he had issued these many weeks ago, when, fresh from his honeymoon, he had begun his campaign for the district attorneyship. These people below certainly had a jolt coming to them. George's impatient and glowering meditations, the hour was then near four, were broken in upon by several interruptions, which came on him in quick succession, as though detonated by brief interval-time fuses. 
the first was the entrance of that straw-haired misspeller of his letters who had succeeded betty sheridan as guardian of the outer office mr doolittle is here she announced he says he wants to see you you tell mr doolittle i don't want to see him commanded the irritated george but mr benjamin doolittle was already seeing his candidate as political boss of his party he had little regard for such formality as being announced to any person on whom he might call so he had walked through the open door well what do you want doolittle george demanded aggressively mr doolittle's face wore that look of bland solicitude that unobtrusive partnership in the misfortune of others which had made him such an admirable and prosperous efficient at the last rites of residence of whitewater i just wanted to ask you george he was beginning in his soft lily-of-the-valley voice when the telephone on george's desk started ringing george turned and reached for it to find that penny had already picked up the instrument i'll answer it george hello mr remington is here but is busy i'll speak for him i'm mr evans what it's you where are you stay where you are i'll come right over for you in my car who was that demanded george genevieve penny said rapidly seizing his hat and i'm going so am i exclaimed george not till we've had a little understanding sharply put in doolittle blocking his way stay here george his partner snapped out she's perfectly safe just a little out of breath telephoned from a drug store over in the redfield district i'll have her back here in fifteen minutes and out penny dashed slamming the door but perhaps it was the straw-haired successor of betty sheridan who really prevented george from plunging after his partner you ordered the sentinel sent up as soon as it was out she said here are six copies george seized the ink-damp papers and as the straw-haired one walked out in rubber-heeled silence he turned savagely upon his campaign manager well doolittle he demanded i just want to ask you george george exploded oh you just want to ask me well everything you want to ask me is answered in that paper read it doolittle took the copy of the sentinel which was thrust into his hands george watched him with triumphant grimness awaiting the effect of the bomb about to explode in the other's face mr doolittle unfolded the sentinel looked it slowly through then raised his eyes to george his face seemed somewhat puzzled but otherwise it was overspread with that sympathetic concern which as much as his hearse and his folding chairs was a part of his professional equipment why george i don't get what you are driving at forgetting that he was holding several copies of the sentinel george dropped them all upon the floor and seized the paper from mr doolittle he glanced swiftly over the first page and experienced the highest voltage shock of his young public career feverishly he skimmed the remaining pages but of all that he had poured out in the office of the sentinel not one word was in print automatically clutching the paper in a hand that fell to his side he stared blankly at his campaign manager mr doolittle gazed back with his air of sympathetic concern bewildered questioning in his eyes and for a space despite the increasing uproar down in the street there was a most perfect silence in the inner office of remington and evans 
Before either of the two men could speak, the door was violently flung open and Martin Jaffrey appeared. His clothing was disarranged, his manner agitated, in striking contrast to the dapper and composed appearance usual to that middle-aged little gentleman. "'George!' he panted. "'Heard anything about Genevieve?' "'She's safe. Penny's got charge of her by this time.' His answer was almost mechanical. "'Thank God!' Uncle Martin collapsed in one of the office chairs. "'Mind, if sit here a minute, get my breath.' George did not reply, for he had not heard. He was gazing steadily at Mr. Doolittle. Some great, but as yet shapeless, force was surging up dazingly within him, but he somehow held himself in control. "'Well, Doolittle,' he demanded, "'you said you came to ask something.' Mr. Doolittle's manner was still propitiatingly bland. "'I'll mention something else first, George, if you don't mind. You just remarked I'd find your answer in the Sentinel. There must have been some little slip-up somewhere, so I guess I better mention first that the Sentinel has arranged to stand ready to get out an extra.' "'An extra? What for?' "'Principally, George, I reckon to print those answers you just spoke of.' George still kept that mounting something under his control. Answers to what? Why, George, the other replied softly, persuasively, I guess we'd better have a little chat, as man to man, without politics. Meaning no offense, George, stalling is all right in politics, but this time you've carried this stalling act a little too far. As the result of your tactics, George, why, here's all this disorder in our streets, and the afternoon before election. If you'd only really tried to stop these messing women, I didn't try to stop them by kidnapping them, burst from George, and Uncle Martin, his breath recovered, now sat up clutching his homespun cap. Kidnapping women? queried the bland, bewildered voice of the party boss. I say, George, I don't know what you're talking about. Why, you— But George caught himself. Speak it out, Doolittle. What do you want? Since you ask it so frankly, George, I'll try to put it plain. You've been going along handing out high-sounding generalities. There's nothing better and safer than generalities, usually. But this ain't no usual case, George. These women, stirring everything up, have got the solid interests so unsettled that they don't know where they're at, or where you're at and a lot of boys in the organization feel the same way. What the crisis needs, George, is a plain statement of your intentions as district attorney, which we can get into that sentinel extra, and which will reassure the public and the organization. A plain statement? There was a grim set to George's jaw. Oh, it needn't go into too many details, just what you might call a ringing declaration about this being the greatest era of prosperity Whitewater has ever known, and that you conceive it to be the duty of your administration to protect and stimulate this prosperity. The people will understand, and the organization will understand. I guess you get what I mean, George. Yes, I get what you mean, exploded George, his fist crashing upon the table. You mean you want me to be a complacent accessory to all the legal evasions that you and your political gang and the rich bunch behind you may want to get away with. You want me to be a crook in office. By God, Doolittle! Shut up, Remington, snapped the political boss, 
his soft manner now vanished, his whole aspect now grimly menacing. I know the rest of what you're going to say. I was pretty certain what it'd be before I came here, but I had to know for sure. Well, I know now, all right. His lank jaws snapped again. Since you are not going to represent the people that put you up, I demand your written withdrawal as a candidate for the district attorney's office. And I refuse to give it, cried George. I was nominated by a convention, not by you. And I don't believe the party is as crooked as you. Anyhow, I'm going to give the decent members of the party a chance to vote decently. And you can't remove me from the ballot, either, for the ballot is already printed and— that'll do you no i thought some time ago i was through with this political mess george drove on but doolittle damn you i've just begun to get in it and i'm going to see it through to the finish suddenly a thin little figure thrust itself between the bellicose pair and began shaking george's hand it was martin jaffrey George, I guess I'm my share of an old scoundrel and a trimmer, but hearing someone stand up and talk man's talk, he broke off to shake George's hand again. I thought you were the king of boobs, but boy, I'm with you to wherever you want to go, if my money will last that far. Keep out of this, Jaffrey, roughly growled Doolittle. It's too late for your dough to help this young pup. Remington, we may not take you off the ballot, but the organization can send out word to the boys to knife me. Of course, I expect that. All right, go to it, but I'm on the ballot. You can't deprive people of the chance of voting for me, and I shall announce myself an independent and shall run as one. We may not be able to elect our own nominee, harshly continued Doolittle, but we can send out word back to the Democratic candidate. Miller ain't much, but at least he's a soft man. And that sentinel extra is going to say that a feeling has spread among the respectable element that it has lost confidence in you, and is going to say that prominent party members feel the party has made a mistake in ever putting you up. So run, damn you, run as a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent. But how are you going to get it across to the public in a way to do yourself any good, without backing? How are you going to get it across to the public? His last words, flung out with overmastering fury, brought George up short, and he saw this. Doolittle's wrath had mounted to that pitch which should never be reached by the resentment of a practical politician. It had attained such force that it drove him on to taunt his man. How are you going to get it before the public? he again demanded, eyes agleam with triumphant rancor with us shutting you off and hammering you on one side, and them damned messy women across the street hammering you from the other side. Oh, it's a grand chance you'll have, one little old grand chance, especially with those dear damned females loving you like they do. Just take a look at what the bunch over there are doing to you. Doolittle followed his own taunting suggestion, and George, too, glancing through his window across the crowded street into the shattered window, whence issued the voiceless speech. In that jagged frame in the raw November air still stood Mrs. Harvey Harrington, turning the giant leaves of her soundless oratory. The heckling request which then struck George's eyes began, Will candidate Remington answer? George Remington read no more. His already tense figure suddenly stiffened. He caught a sharp breath. 
Then, without a word to the two men with him, he seized his hat and dashed from his office. The street was even more a turbulent human sea, with violently twisting eddies, than had appeared from George's windows. It seemed that every member of the organizations whom Mrs. Harrington, and also Betty Sheridan, and later E. Elliot, and, at the last, Genevieve, had brought into this fight, were now downtown for the supreme effort, and it seemed that there were now more of the so-called better citizens. Certainly there were more of Noonan's men, and these were still elbowing and jostling, and making little mass rushes, yet otherwise holding themselves ominously in control. Into this milling assemblage George flung himself, so dominated by the fiery urge within him that he did not hear Genevieve call to him from Penny's car, which just then swung around the corner and came to a sharp stop on the skirts of the crowd. George shouldered his way irresistibly through this mass. The methods of his football days when he had been famed as a line-plunging back instinctively returned and all the fine chivalry forgotten which had given to his initial statement to the voters of whitewater so noble a sound he battered aside many of those fairest flowers of our civilization to protect whom it is man's duty and inspiration his lunging progress followed by curses and startled cries of feminine indignation he at length emerged upon the opposite sidewalk and breathless and dishevelled he burst into the headquarters of the voiceless speech some half-dozen of mrs harrington's assistants cried out at his abrupt entrance mrs harrington forward beside the speech turned quickly about mr remington you here she cried in amazement as he strode toward her what what do you want i want i want gasped george but instead of finishing his sentence, he elbowed Mrs. Harrington out of the way, shoved past her, and stepped forth in front of the voiceless speech. There, standing in the frame of jagged plate-glass, upon what was equivalent to a platform raised above the crowd, he sent forth a speech which had a voice. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he called, raising an imperative hand. The uproar subsided to numerous exclamations, then to surprised silence." Even Noonan's men checked their disorder at this appearance of their party's candidate. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' and this voiceful speech was loud, "'I'm here to answer the questions of this contrivance behind me. But first let me tell you that though I'm on the ballot as the candidate of the Republican Party, I do not want the backing of the Republican machine. I'm running as an independent, and I shall act as an independent.' here are my answers. I want to tell you that I shall enforce all the factory laws. I want to tell you that I shall enforce the laws governing housing conditions, particularly housing conditions in the factory district. I want to tell you that I shall enforce the laws governing child labor and the laws governing the labor of women. And I want to tell you that I shall enforce every other law and shall try to secure the passage of further laws which will make Whitewater a clean, forward-looking city, whose first consideration shall be the welfare of all. And, ladies and gentlemen, he shouted, for the hushed voices had begun to rise, I wish I could address you all as fellow voters. I want to tell you that I take back that foolish statement I made at the beginning of the campaign. I want to tell you that I stand for, and shall fight for, 
equal suffrage and i want to tell you that what has brought this change is what some of the women of whitewater have shown me and also some of the things our men politicians have done our doolittles our noonans but george's speech terminated right there noise there had been before now there burst out an uproar and there came an artillery attack of eggs vegetables stones and bricks one of the bricks struck george on the shoulder and drove him staggering back against the voiceless speech sending that instrument of silent argument crashing to the floor regaining his balance george started furiously back for the window but mrs harrington caught his arm let me go he called trying to shake her off but she held on don't you've said enough she cried and pulled him toward the rear of the room look through the window was coming a heavier fire of impromptu grenades that rolled spent at their feet but what they saw without was far more stirring and important noonan's men in the crowd their hoodlumism now unleashed were bowling over the people about them but these really constituted noonan's outposts and advance guards from out of two side streets though george and mrs harrington could not see their first appearance upon the scene noonan's real army now came charging into main street as per that gentleman's grim instructions to show them messin women what it means to messin politics hundreds of whitewater's women were flung about many sent sprawling to the pavement and some hundreds of the city's most respectable voters caught unawares were hustled about and knocked down by the same ruthless drive my god cried george impulsively starting forward the damned brutes but mrs harrington still held his arm come on they're making a drive for this office breathlessly cried the quick-minded lady you can do no good here out the rear way my car's waiting in the back street still clutching his sleeve mrs harrington opened a door and ran across the back yard of mcmonagle's building in a manner which indicated that that lady had not spent her college years and similarly spent the years since then propped among embroidered cushions consuming marshmallows and fudge the lot crossed she hurried through a little grocery and thence into the street here they ran into a party that seeing the riot on main street and the drive upon the window from which george had spoken had rushed up reinforcements from the rear a party consisting of penny e elliot betty sheridan and genevieve genevieve cried george and caught her into his arms oh george she choked i-i heard it all and it-and it was simply wonderful george cried betty sheridan i always knew if you got the right kind of a jolt you'd be-you'd be what you are e elliot gripped his hand in a clasp almost as strong as george's arm mr remington if i were a man i'd like to have the same sort of stuff in me george you old roughneck began penny george interrupted genevieve still chokingly her protective wifely instinct now at the fore i saw you hit and we're going to take you straight home cut it all out interrupted the cultured mrs harrington this isn't mr remington's honeymoon nor his college reunion nor the annual convention of his maiden aunts this is mr remington's campaign and i'm his new campaign manager and his campaign manager says he's not going away out to his home on sheridan road 
his campaign headquarters are going to be in the centre of town in the commercial hotel where he can be reached for there's quick work ahead of us come on five minutes later they were all in the commercial hotel's best suite now to business mr remington briskly began mrs harrington of course that was a good speech but why in heaven's name didn't you come out with it before i guess i really didn't know where i stood until today confessed george and today i tried to come out with it and george went on to recount his experience with the sentinel his scene with doolittle and doolittle's plan for an extra of the sentinel which was doubtless then in preparation so they've got the sentinel muzzled have they and are going to get out an extra repudiating you mrs harrington repeated there came a flash into her quick dark eyes i want our candidate to stay right here rest up get his thoughts in order there are a lot of things to be done i'll be back in an hour mr remington the rest of you come along you too mrs remington mrs harrington did not altogether keep her word on the matter of time it was two hours before she was back to george she handed a bundle of papers remarking thought you'd like to see that sentinel extra i suppose doolittle has done his worst he remarked grimly he glanced at the paper his face went loose with bewilderment at what he saw headlines big black headlines bigger and blacker than he had ever before seen in the politically and typographically conservative sentinel he read through a few lines of print then looked up why it's all here he gasped the kidnapping of miss elliot and genevieve by noonan's men my break with doolittle my denunciation of the party's methods my coming out as an independent candidate that riot on main street how on earth did that ever get into the sentinel some straight talk and quick talk and the exercise of a little of the art of pressure they say you men exercise was the prompt reply i telephoned mr ledbetter of the sentinel advising him to hold the extra mr doolittle had threatened until he heard from mr wesley norton proprietor of the norton dry goods store you know mr norton is the sentinel's largest single advertiser and president of the whitewater businessmen's club then a committee of us women called on mr norton and told him that we'd organize the women of the city and would carry on a boycott campaign against his store we didn't really put it quite as crudely as that unless he'd forced the sentinel to stop mr doolittle's lying extra and print your statement mr norton gave in and telephoned the sentinel that if they didn't do as he said he'd cancel his advertising contract then to make sure we got hold of mr jaffrey called on mr ledbetter who called in the business manager and your uncle martin told them that unless they printed the truth and every bit of it and printed it at once he was going to put up the money to start an opposition paper that would print the truth that explains the extra well ejaculated george still staring you certainly are a wonder as a campaign manager oh i only did my fraction that miss elliot did as much as i she's a find she's going to be one of whitewater's really big women and betty sheridan you can't guess how betty's worked and your wife mr remington she's turning out to be a marvel but that's not all mrs harrington continued rapidly 
we bought ten thousand copies of that extra for ourselves your uncle paid for them and we're going to distribute them in every home in town when the best element in whitewater read how the women were trampled down by noonan's mob well they'll know how to vote mr noonan will never guess how much he has helped us you seem to have left nothing for me to do said george you'll find out that there'll be all you want replied the brisk mrs harrington we're organizing meetings one in every hall in the city one on almost every other street corner and we're going to rush you from one to the next most of the night and there'll be no let-up for you to-morrow even if it is election day yes you'll find there'll be plenty to do the next twenty-four hours were the busiest that george remington had ever known in his twenty-six years but at nine o'clock the next evening it was over the tumult and the shouting and the congratulations and all were gone save only martin jaffrey and district attorney-elect remington sat in his hotel suite alone in the bosom of his family he was still dazed by what had happened to him at the part he had unexpectedly played dazed by the intense but well-ordered activity of the women their management of his whirlwind tour of the city their organization of parades with amazing swiftness their rapid and complete house-to-house -house canvas the work of mrs harrington of betty of that miss elliot of hundreds of women and especially of genevieve he marvelled especially at genevieve because he had never thought of genevieve as doing such things but she had done them he felt that somehow she was a different genevieve he didn't know what the difference was he was in too much of a whirl for analysis but he had an undefined sense of aliveness of a spirited joyous initiative in her she and all the rest seemed so strange as to be unbelievable and yet she and all of it true from dramatic events and intangible qualities of the spirit his consciousness shifted to material things his immediate surroundings not till this blessed moment of relaxation did he become aware of the discomforts of this suite nor did genevieve fully appreciate the flamboyantly flowered maroon wallpaper and the jigsaw furniture george she sighed now that you're not needed down here can't we go home home the word came out half snort half growl hardly the tone becoming one whose triumph was so exultingly fresh with a jar he had come back to a present which he fully understood damn home i haven't any home genevieve stared uncle martin snickered for uncle martin had the gift of understanding you mean those flowers of womanhood whom chivalrous men shut up commanded george he thought for a brief space then his jaw set excuse me a moment drawing hotel stationery toward him he scribbled rapidly and then sealed and addressed what he had written uncle martin your car's outside doing nothing would you mind going on ahead and giving this little note to cousin alice brewster smith and then staying around and having a little supper with genevieve and me we'll be out soon but there are a few things i want to talk over with genevieve alone before we come uncle martin would oblige but when he had gone there seemed to be nothing of pressing importance that george had to communicate to genevieve nor half an hour later when he had led his bride of four months up to their home had he delivered himself of anything which seemed to require privacy 
as they stepped up on the porch softly lighted by a frosted bulb in its ceiling cousin emmeline her cat under her arm came out of the front door and hurried past them without speech why cousin emmeline george called after her she paused and half turned you you she half choked upon expletives that would not come forth the man will come for my trunks in the morning thrusting a handkerchief to her face she hurried away george what can have happened to her cried the amazed genevieve but george was saved answering her just then another figure had emerged from the front door a rather largish figure all in black her left hand clutched the right hand of a child aged possibly five and this figure did not cower and hurry away this figure halted and glowered george remington exclaimed cousin alice after your invitation you you apostate to chivalry that outrageous letter but if i am leaving your home thank god i'm leaving it for a home of my own come on martin with that she stalked away dragging the sleepy eleanor not till then did george and genevieve become aware that uncle martin was before them having until now been obscured by mrs brewster smith's outraged amplitude his arms were loaded with coats obviously feminine uncle martin exclaimed george george gulped his uncle george and then he gained control of a dazed sort of speech when i gave her that letter i didn't know it was a letter of eviction and the way she broke down before me a woman you know i i well george it's my home she's going to you don't mean yes george that's just what i mean though of course i'm taking her back now to mrs gallup's boarding-house until until good-night george good-night genevieve the little man went staggering down the walk with his burden of wraps and after a minute there came the sound of his six-cylinder roadster buzzing away into the darkness i didn't tell him they had to go to-night said george doggedly but i did remark that even if every woman had a right to a home every woman didn't have the right to make my home her home anyhow his tone becoming softer i've at last got a home of my own our own he corrected he took her in his arms and sweetheart it's a better home than when we first came to it for now i've got more sense now it is a home in which each of us has the right to think and be what we please at just about this same hour about this same scene was being enacted upon another front porch in whitewater there being the slight difference that the second porch was not softly illuminated by any frosted globule of incandescence up the three steps leading to this second porch mr penfield evans had that moment escorted mrs elizabeth sheridan good-night penny she said he caught her by her two shoulders see here betty the last twenty-four hours have been mighty busy hours too busy even to talk about ourselves but now see here you're not going to get away with any rough work like that come across now will you will i what say how long do you think you're a paid-up subscriber to this little daily speech of mine well if i've got to hand you another copy here goes you promised me on your word of honor if george swung around for suffrage you'd swing around for me well george has come around not that i had much to do with it but he surely did come around 
now the point is miss betty sheridan you are a woman of your promise are you going to marry me well if you try to put it that way demanding your pound of flesh one hundred and twenty pounds corrected penny i'll say that of course i don't love you but i guess a promise is a promise and 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 suddenly a pair of strong young arms were flung about the neck of mr penfield evans oh i'm so happy penny dear betty after that there was a long silence silence broken only by that softly sibilant detonation which belongs most properly to the month of june but confines itself to no season to a long long silence born of and blessed by the gods until one percival sheridan coming stealthily home from a late debauch at humphrey's drug store and mounting the steps in the tennis sneakers which were his invariable wear on dry and non-state occasions bumped into the invisible and unhearing couple say there gasped the startled youth backing away betty gave an affrighted cry it was a long swift journey down from where she had just been her right hand reaching drowningly out fell upon a familiar shoulder it's pudge she cried pudge shaking him snooping around listening and trying to spy you stop that it ain't so protested the outraged pudge his utterance throttled down somewhat by the chocolate cream in his mouth spying on people and besides you've been stuffing yourself with candy again you're ruining your stomach with that sticky sweet stuff you're headed straight for a candy fiend's grave now you go upstairs and to bed she jerked him toward the door opened it and as he was thrust through the door pudge felt something something warm press impulsively against a cheek not until the door had closed upon him did he realize what betty had done to him he stood dazed for a moment unbalanced between impulses then the sturdy maleness of fourteen rewon its dominance i guess i know what they was doing all right ah wouldn't it make you sick and in disgust which another chocolate cream alleviated hardly at all he mounted to his bed outside there was again silence faintly disturbed only by that softly sibilant almost muted percussion which recalls inevitably the month of june end of chapter fourteen end of the sturdy oak